Welcome to another session with the Market Dominance Guys, a program about the innovators, idealists, and entrepreneurs who thrive and die in the high-stakes world of building a startup company. We explore the cookbooks, guidebooks, and magic beans needed to grow your business. So let's get going. You're listening to the Market Dominance Guys with your hosts, Chris Beal of Connect and Sell and Corey Frank of Uncommon Pro. In the modern SaaS economy, adoption metrics abound. Sure, they measure something that VC investors care about, and sometimes something that product recommenders and even decision makers want to track. But does adoption speak to business impact? One thing's for sure, when it comes to business impact, adoption metrics are pure vanity. A business doesn't measure return on investment by asking how much time its employees are spending as users. Horror stories abound of products that suck up time due to their own internal inefficiencies, sending employees on wild goose chases to figure out what to put in that so-called required field, or how to coax a shiny new SaaS product into spitting out a coherent report on what it did for you, or, more likely, what you did for it. At its worst, a focus on adoption invites corruption, as a SaaS vendor needs to make a claim that their goodness is spreading throughout your organization, and the buying committee needs to justify and feel good about their purchase. Join Chris and Corey as they talk with Mike Jensel, co-founder and CEO of Visualize ROI, and analyze the practices and dilemmas of determining adoption, the difference between theoretical value and harvestable value, what a QPR has to do with renewal, and the role of a VP of value. Join us for this episode of The Market Dominance Guys. Well, here we are all together for another episode of The Market Dominance Guys with Chris Beal, the Sage of Sales, and Corey Frank. Chris, as you know, we don't have guests on too often, but we seem to be saying that more and more often that we don't have guests on often. But we just keep running into so many interesting folks, smart folks, that we want to we wanna get on the air. The, some of the information, some of our conversations that we've had are just too powerful to have just in our little own Zoom world. And so, so Chris, we want to certainly welcome our, our newest, oldest friend here, Mike Jenstil, CEO of Visualize ROI. Is that, the, is that the name of the company? Is that the tool? Is that a little bit of both, Mike? Visualize ROI is the application that our company sells. Yes, that's the name of how we market ourselves. Well, fantastic. Well, welcome to the Market Dominance, guys. Chris, how about you tell our audience a little bit about how you came across Mike and especially in our topic today, which I think is so captivating, which is customer success and customer adoption and some of the flypaper and, and stickiness that we all as sales leaders are trying to get at and some of these vanity metrics, as we talked about, that people chase. But yeah, let's talk a little bit about how you tripped over Mike and why he's such a pertinent guest for us here at the Market Dominus, guys. Sure, absolutely, Corey. And welcome, Mike. This is going to be fun. So Mike and I ran into each other, what, a few years ago, right? Three years ago, something like that. Yep. And started working together with us as a client to visualize ROI to figure out how we could take our test drives and turn them into ROI-centric case studies. And we do hundreds and hundreds of test drives every year. And I've been frustrated through the years with our 
uh, lack of, shall we say, sophistication and compelling presentation of the value and the return on investment for our customers. Now, their investment in the test drive, of course, is just three or four hours of their people's time. Nobody pays for our test drives, but still, you want to be able to show business impact. Mm -hmm. And our conversation has evolved over the years to be much more about this big question of the business impact of what you buy in business and measuring it and making it abundantly clear, both from the vendor's perspective, they'd love to be seen as having big impact, but primarily from the customer's perspective. And we were just having a discussion the other day about this. Mike and his team were taking what we call our attribution report, which is a lame name for what did you get out of all that connect and sell you bought, right? How much pipeline value did you generate? How much directly, how much indirectly, and how much kind of maybe sort of. So we shipped off some data to them. His team put together something that was just awesome that allows for an interactive QBR. So we started talking about what is the role of the QBR? What, is, what does it all mean with regard to renewal? And Mike said something to me right as we were wrapping up, which was, he said it kind of hesitantly. He says, you know, I'm not like 100% fond of uh, the adoption metrics that people use. And I just jumped out of my skin and I said, I hate them. I think they're, I think they're corrupting. I think they're terrible. I think that they're misleading. I think they're gameable. I think they're for venture capitalists to care about something that they should be more careful about. And it encourages people who build SaaS companies to lie about their business. And I, I gave him an example. There is a company that will remain unnamed in our space that we're in the same account with. And the people at the account said, these guys at this company, they measure adoption if you send one email using their tool. That's adoption. We don't see it that way. You guys talk to us about business impact. I said, yeah, but we fail to actually quantify it for you. I said, Mike, you hate it. I hate it. Let's talk about it. So here he is. That is a setup. I think the first question then, Mike, with that is, I remember working at a drugstore when I was in grade school and I'd to stack the Sunday papers. And I, I remember getting, you remember those coupon sections that came in the Sunday papers and out of the coupon section. And on the bottom of every coupon, they always said no cash value or they said cash value one one hundredth of a cent. And it seems to me, Chris, what you're setting up Mike on is these vanity metrics where one man's trash is another man's treasure and certainly vice versa. But a lot of these adoption metrics, if you really look closely from a venture perspective or a valuation perspective, I can't pay my employees with coupons. I can't pay them with adoption rates. And so who cares about that? So let's talk a little bit about what are some of these other adoption metrics that you've seen, certainly in your years, that have that cash value of one one hundredth of a cent or maybe nearly nothing to the rest of us business owners? Yeah, so I think the impetus for this discussion is when you think about, as a vendor, getting a renewal from a customer. So often what you'll hear from your contact is, well, we did an internal survey and we learned that the adoption was okay or it was great and other tools or other services have more adoption. You're like, okay, well, that's interesting, but the value of the adoption is what? Let's say that you give your employees free crackers and they love the free crackers and you do a survey. Hey, what's the value of the free crackers? Well, everybody loves the free crackers. What's it worth? Should I continue to spend money on the free crackers? Or if, if I have to make a choice, should I spend money on something that like an automatic dialer that actually gets connections with people where I grow my business? So I think CFOs 
want to spend money on services and solutions that create value and ROI, that that's how they're wired to think. But the metric that they're given by, their, by the business owners and, uh, of these solutions typically is just an adoption metric because they, there's nothing else that they are trained or capable of providing to the CFO. So I think that kicked off the discussion around how do we bridge the gap here? Because everybody, the seller wants to communicate the ROI, the buyer wants to understand it. But in the meantime, the only thing people are looking at is adoption. And I think it spans all of the main services that people are spending money on from a procurement perspective in B2B. So there's a lot of noise out there of what really is determinant of true ROI. And very few of them, it seems, actually have uh, dollars associated with it. Instead, it takes a little bit of extrapolation to get to the actual real value of what the impact is to that business. Exactly. The good news is it's relatively easy to measure adoption. And then the second piece of good news that Chris and I have been discussing is if you roll up your sleeves a little bit, you can extract and extrapolate some kind of value calculation. Whether you're subscribing to an invoice processing service or an automatic dialer or uh, or a service that helps you reduce fuel cost, if you actually do the math and make some basic assumptions, you can get to a value estimate. And in that case, you're going to make everyone happy. The, the CFO is going to be happy. The business owner is going to be happy. And then the vendor is able to quantify the ROI and communicate that to you. So the work can be done. We just need to roll up our sleeves as buyers and sellers and do it. And Chris, when Mike struck that nerve on an adoption or so, what were some of the vapid metrics that you've seen over the years that kind of prompted the visceral reaction that you gave? Well, most of it's been adoption. That's the best. that's the one. And, and the fact is, it's not considered vapid. It's considered essential mm-hmm. with hundreds of millions or billions of dollars being invested based on these adoption numbers, which seem completely, well, not wholly uncorrelated. After all, if you get no adoption, nobody uses your product, you're probably going to fail spectacularly, right? In much the same way in our business, if you, if you were to buy Connect and Sell as a service and then nobody pushes the button and talks to anybody, It really doesn't matter how great those conversations would have been and how much business they would have led to. This is the quantity quality thing. At quantity zero, the quality is always the same. It's zero by default. You know, it's not like it's a a totally dumb metric. It's a highly gameable metric. And gameable metrics suffer from inflation on one side. Whoever is going to make the most money at the margin by gaming the metric is going to game it in an inflationary kind of way. And then discounting on the other side. So then CFOs and other people who with flinty eyes and green eye shades will look at it and say, yeah, 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 yeah. And so you get a runaway process of discounting versus gaming. And eventually you just end up with this goo, which has no intellectual integrity to it and really no predictive power. What's kind of funny, though, is on the other side, if you look at any estimate of ROI that's rational, So you're measuring something. You're measuring real something. And at the end, you get dollars. Dollars are invested and dollars have come out, whether in the form of savings or in the form of gross profit contribution, kind of the two ways that dollars move around. Could also be in the form of risk, which is the trickiest of the dollars to measure. There's a big industry around doing something about that one. And every once in a while, they get shocked and surprised by something like, oh, I don't know, say a global pandemic or a hurricane that uh, is a little fiercer than normal. 
But for the most part, it's kind of cost savings or, or it's this other side of people call it revenue, but it's really gross profit contribution. And so if you get a measurement going, the beauty is, say you love it now, you love what you're getting from Mike's company. I'm using visualized ROI, everybody's happy and we're, we feel like we're getting something good. When we measure, we get a five. Mm-hmm. And the next time we measure, we get a seven. It's the same measurement. We probably can rely on that being a 40% improvement over the five. And if, by the way, if the five were 5% and the seven were 7%, most salespeople would report that as a 2% improvement, which shows that they could use a little math education as could many people. But it's a 40% improvement over a baseline that was established as being above threshold for investment. And so we can rely on real measurements of dollars in and dollars out to some degree in the absolute, but really, really strongly relative to a baseline that we've established. We cannot do this with measurements like adoption. We'll be back in a moment after a quick break. Connect and sell. Welcome to the end of dialing as you know it. Connect and Sell's patented technology loads your best sales folks up with eight to 10 times more live qualified conversations every day. And when we say qualified, we're talking about really qualified, like knowing what kind of cheese they like on their impossible Whopper kind of qualified. Learn more at connectandsell.com. Where the marginal increase tends to be, shall we say, frothy. Yeah. Corey, let me give you maybe a, a different example just to, because uh, probably everybody on this call recruits candidates. Part of your candidate recruitment, you probably have an HR platform. You might have Google Sheets. You might have some, there's a number of other platforms. Now, if you are the VP of HR and you're subscribing to one of these recruitment platforms, some people call it applicant tracking software, for example, and we have customers that sell this kind of software. The VP of HR might say, hey, our applicant tracking software system was great last year. We submitted, we had 2,000 candidates submit their resumes into our software and we hired 100 people. Great. And she could say, or he could say, we love the software. But guess what? What if it so turns out that those 100 candidates are on average lower quality than another set of 100 candidates that they could have hired? Mm -hmm. And what if it took them five months to hire those candidates versus what could have been three months with a superior platform. They might think, so this is a classic vanity metric. We used it a lot. We submitted a whole bunch of candidates. We actually hired people. But what you really care about is the VP of HR and the CEO and the executive team is hiring high quality candidates that can add value on day one and hire them quickly at the right price. That's a valuable system. You're not overpaying the market, not overpaying recruiters, et cetera. If you were the vendor of that applicant tracking software, you would want to communicate, yeah, you used it a lot, but the value you got was substantial. And you would quantify all those pieces and we'd back into how you could do that. I could give you a couple more examples where you want, we could. Yeah, no, that value, that value communication, right, I think is key. And even what you're alluding to earlier, Chris, on discounting, I think, Mike, is appropriate, right? Because again, I'm a big dumb farm animal. I'm a sales rep, right? And I've been a sales rep for a long time. Sometimes I have a tendency to discount when I don't need a discount. And, and, and Mike, you're my boss, you're my VP of sales. And you think, gosh, Corey, Corey actually does a pretty good job selling. But am I really? Because I'm, I'm giving away the farm when I don't need to. And how would I be able to kind of 
track that. I maybe think I ran into some pain and I have to discount, but I think that's also a metric that maybe is, is a little elusive for companies that would be wonderful to be able to determine if I run into resistance and in, in proportionate to discounting, true? Absolutely. And, and Corey, I think you're referring to a pre-sales process. I think it, it would also apply in a post-sales case. Discounting is a problem both in pre-sales and in post-sales. In pre-sales, it's a problem because, yeah, that rep who is high velocity, likes to close sales, likes to hit the number at the end of the quarter, is very quick to di- give discounts. And, and truly, the VP would be happy to take the deal at 80% of the price. It helps him get over his number versus if we had simply quantified value and quantified pain, we probably could have gotten 95 to 100% of the price. And on the renewal side, we have the same challenge. What you run into there is in an average or above average case, the customer will say, yeah, the adoption was pretty good. Bobby and Susie love your product and we want to keep it. But we've got some bad news. The bad news is we're in a recession. The CFO is looking at everything very carefully, and we have been asked for, across the board, 30% cuts on everything. Like, okay, well, yeah, that is bad news. I understand. I'm glad you're happy with the product. Now, what would I ideally be able to do in that case? I'd say, well, you know, I appreciate that CFO's perspective. What what would be great, because I'm not sure I can get that discount across the board. That can't tell our investors that we've lowered our average revenue per, per customer. Why don't we take to that CFO, to your CFO, the value that you've realized from the solution. And perhaps you guys should buy more of it next year. And maybe you could redirect some spend from some of those other solutions that are getting less ROI. Why don't you cut two of those 100% and redirect that over here because there's real ROI. That's the discussion you want to have. And if you've set that up over the course of the year through your quarterly business reviews where you've associated adoption with value, you're in a strong position to do that. And in the best case, you're actually pinging that CFO somehow quarter over quarter. Hey, by the way, you used our solution 222 times and it generated $5 million in value. And he's like, who are these folks? And, you know, and, then, and then you'll raise the awareness. Then, it, then you're in a much better position at that last minute uh, when you have to do the renewal. Where, to your point, Mike, where does this, where does this live? Uh, Chris, where would you and, and Mike see ideally, that, is this a new role of VP of customer success, a VP of value? Because it seems like that this discussion, right, traverses so many different roles in an organization. Is it worthy of its own little responsibility? Is it an enablement? Uh, let's talk a little bit about that. I'll give you a quick perspective. What we see across our customers is there is a growing number of customers that do have a title VP of value. And that VP of value can report into the chief revenue officer. They can report into the head of solution engineering in some cases. They can also report into the CFO in some cases. The more important point, I think, is not where they report, but the person that quantifies that value inserts that those value estimates at every step in the customer life cycle. There's a version of value calculations for marketing people who are trying to entice people to become a lead. There's a version for your inside sales team that's trying to get you to take a meeting and you're quantifying value as part of that. There's a version for the salesperson and then there's a version for the customer success person. I think the VP of customer success and the VP of sales and the VP of marketing they should be able to quantify value for their motions. They should extract that quantification from that function 
that function, again, could live in its own silo or they could report to any of those folks theoretically, but each customer facing function should be able to extract those calculations and use them to their purposes properly. Wow, you have value. I got I to gotta go and apply for that job. That sounds like fun. <laughs> Not an easy job. You better love Excel. <laughs> well, I do have a certain fondness for the occasional spreadsheet, as Corey knows. So, uh, yeah, it's interesting. In, in our company, we, we do something a little funny, which is our VP of customer success is actually evaluated based on the customers getting the maximum amount of business impact, which we measure tend to measure in terms of meetings that are set. Now, people will argue and say, oh, the meeting set might not have happened, blah, blah, blah. But I guarantee you over time, it's linearly related to value. And that's the main thing is that you need a linear relationship between whatever you're measuring and whatever you're getting out so that should it trend, the trending actually will represent a linear increase or decrease in the value that's being achieved. So James Townsend, our VP of customer success is held directly accountable for the value that our customers get per dollar that they spend with us. And his job is to minimize the dollars that they spend for the same unit of value. So you could look at it two ways, but the easiest thing to hit is always costs. And so he's always looking for opportunities with his team to keep folks from using too much connect and sell. You might've experienced this, Corey, when you were our customer and I was acting in that role of VP of customer success when you were our customer at Stormwind. And I was telling you to use less. Right. Here's a guy that didn't want me to spend less, Corey. Spend less with me. (laughs) Well, it's it's not altruistic. It's just I think it's like, look, we put a keel on a sailboat not in order to make it go faster, but so that it can go the direction that you want and it doesn't ever tip over and leave you upside down turtle in the water, right? It actually slows the boat down, sticks down in the water. But you you try sailing in rough seas without a keel on your boat and you get a little bit nervous. I believe that this attachment to maximizing the customer value per unit spend, that is their ROI with us and focusing on it because we have the inside track. The thing that vendors, I think, need to realize is, look, asking your customer to do this is asking them to do something really hard. If they provide you with a little bit of data, you can provide them with a lot of insight as long as you both agree what you're trying to do, which is to get them to spend the least with you to get the, the maximum business impact. That's what I hate about this whole business of adoption because it leads to exactly the opposite. I want the marginal adopted user. Think of it this way. If I have a SaaS solution and for 10 core users, it provides for every $100 spent, it provides $1,000 of value per year. And then for the next 50 users, for every $100 spent, it provides $200 of value. And then for the next thousand users, for every hundred spent, it provides no value whatsoever. So I run out of the users that are really the high impact users fairly early, but I'm under pressure to extend the usage beyond that group. That's what I'm referring to as the corrupting influence of the adoption metric on customer success. It runs counter to the mission to help the customer be successful for the least amount of money that they need to spend. Then you can find their budget. And by the way, they're likely to reward you next year in a funny way. They'll discount less. The discounting of price is irrelevant compared to the discounting of value. As skepticism will cost you more than transactional discounting over time, every time. So if you can dispel skepticism, by being upfront about the value that's being created and transparent about it. Transparency is a big movement in business. Lay it out. 
and say, here's what we're doing. And by the way, there's a big difference between the- theoretical value and harvestable value. Like at Connect and Sell, I could tell you I could save you money, right? After all, you could have a smaller team. Well, what if you don't shrink the team? Then you didn't harvest that value. Are you likely to shrink the team within the time frame that we're talking about for harvesting the value? If not, it's illegitimate of me to talk to you about the cost savings. I need to talk to you about the opportunity, about getting more on the top line, a little bit more painful, but I got to go there. Maybe in the next budget cycle, you won't grow the team as much. Chris, that was a fantastic example of that kind of distribution or histogram, if you will, of value by user. A good example, perhaps, for folks listening is you think about a, a service like LinkedIn, where if you've got a team of 100 sales reps, sure, they're all going to want access to LinkedIn. Now, of those 100 sales reps, 10 of them, for example, are going to use that so effectively, they're going to find the best contacts, they're going to generate half a million dollars in pipeline per month because they're able to use LinkedIn so well. The bottom 10%, they're going to use it and they may or may not pay for their, their subscription at all because they're just, they're not as connected already, first degree connections, secondary connections, they're not as skilled. So as a VP of sales operations, subscribing to LinkedIn across those 100 users, if push comes to shove, you have to become a little bit tough and very analytical around, well, maybe these guys get a premium subscription, maybe these guys get nothing at all, or that's where it gets very tricky. And then the customers, to Chris's point, the customer success rep for LinkedIn managing that account should be ensuring that the high value users really know all of the great features. So they're getting more and more and more value, maybe even able to charge them more for more features. Whereas they get the, the people at the end of the histogram, at least to a point where they can prove to themselves and the CFO, they're getting value out of it. That would be very sophisticated customer success. I have to believe that's where we're going as an industry. Well, I think so too. And that, that's a great way to kind of end this part one session with Mike from Visualize ROI. And I think maybe in our part two, Mike, we can expand on this that you and Chris were talking about, about this as sales guys like me, the goal is to create a compelling narrative, right? That sparks creativity and inspires that prospect to make a buying decision, a purchase. But often, right, I'm going to focus on what my product can do for the prospect's business, but I don't spend enough time demonstrating how it will actually make an impact. And I think in our part two, we really like to hear you and Chris expand on this evolution from moving from traditional, how do I justifiably earn an ROI and how I process that to more value-based messaging, which I think what you and Chris are talking about and how that value-based messaging can take ROI and go beyond just merely budget conversations. So I think that's a good place to to stop session one here and to thank Mike for his time on this and tune in next time to part two with Mike Gensel from Visualize ROI with more on customer adoption. Today's show is also brought to you by UncommonPro.com. Selling a big idea to a skeptical customer or investor is one of the hardest jobs in business. So when it's really time to go big, you need an uncommon methodology to convince others that your ideas will truly change their world. Through a modern and innovative sales and scripting tool set, we offer a guiding hand to ambitious leaders in their quest to reach market dominance. It's time to get uncommon with UncommonPro.com. Never miss an episode. Go to any of your favorite podcast venues and search for Market Dominance Guys or go to marketdominanceguys.com and subscribe. Subscribe.